This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Jimmy Hickey told the story of how he drove $28,000 from one viral Reddit post. On today's episode, you'll hear from an entrepreneur that created a testing framework that he used to build a $10 million business. In this episode, you'll learn how to survey people in person to validate a product or business idea, how to differentiate yourself in a competitive marketplace, and how to find and hire people that are smarter than you. Today, I'm joined by Rich Fulop from brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Brooklinen supplies simple and beautiful bedroom basics delivered straight to your door. Was started in 2013 and based out of Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Rich. Thanks, Felix. Uh, Happy to be here. Awesome. Yeah, glad to have you here. So tell us a little bit more about your business. What are are some of the most popular products that you sell? Well, uh, we started the business um, just around bed sheets. Um, my wife and I started the businesses purely based out of personal experience. Um, we went to the, we moved into a new apartment, um, necessitated buying new sheets and pillows. We went to the big box store and uh, we really just hated the experience there. There wasn't a lot of information and, uh, it was very confusing. And at that point there was a lot going on with direct to consumer brands. And we kind of felt like there was a void here in the market, um, for, you know, kind of bedroom products and, uh, we didn't really have much interest in getting into the mattress game. It was more of the sheets and pillows, which were expression of personal style and comfort. Um, so that's really what we wanted to go at with a very, very premium product at an accessible price was really our mission from the get-go. Yeah, this whole direct-to-consumer thing is definitely something I want to dive into a little bit deeper. And it's funny, you, know, you and I are both, both from New York, and on the subway, on the, on the trains, you see ads all the time for so many direct-to-consumer products you know, in the, in the home, in the home space and everything. It's, it's uh, definitely starting to become much, much more popular. Um, so you, you said that you saw a void that there was in this marketplace, and you obviously, you and uh, Vicky needed... Uh, Saw, had, didn't, didn't enjoy the experience of the retail experience that you had gone through. So you decided to start a business. Like, what were like the first steps towards that? You know, because people out there that are listening might be like, you know, thinking, yes, I see a void. I also have a pain or, or an itch that I want to scratch myself. How do I, like, what are the very next steps to take? Yeah, well, we took a very unconventional route, um, especially when you compare us to all the other direct-to-consumer brands out there. Um, I was in business school at the time. I was in NYU. And my wife was working in public relations for an agency um, right when this was going on. And, you know, in our spare time, we, we shopped at, you know, albeit Everlane or Warby Parker or Harry's, and there was just nothing going on here. So that's when we saw the opportunity. At the same time, while I was in school, I, the opportunity cost to really go after this and pursue this idea was very low because I didn't have another job that I had to set aside. I had access to all these resources of all my professors and like a network of students that were really um, either connected or experienced or knowledgeable about different areas. So it kind of like fed into the whole narrative of, you know, why not just go for it and see what happens? And you know, I can't even tell you like how many people told, told us we were crazy or stupid. Like who wants to get into the bedsheets business in 2016? Um, but, you know, we've proven them wrong pretty much every step of the way. And uh, Kickstarter was really the first way to validate the idea. 
Mm, makes sense. So you had this. Uh, you you had you had I guess these this um, I guess uh, background or, or uh, connections with with your school and everything. Did you already have experience launching businesses in the past, or was this your very first kind of entrepreneurial project? Um, Vicky and I, neither of us had any experience um, starting a business. We always had an itch. We wanted to scratch. We always envisioned ourselves, um, you know starting our own company, a brand that we can really tailor to our own tastes and run the way we wanted. Um, we'd both been part of companies that had you know, company culture that we didn't love so much. So uh, we really had ideas of what we would do better. Um, and it was really just, you know, we wanted to pursue it and just went for it. Um, additionally, um, I can't tell you how many people told us, we were, like I said, we were stupid and crazy. Um, investors, almost every investor turned us down. Uh, I could say every institutional investor um, turned us down from the get-go, and that's why we had to turn to Kickstarter to really validate, validate the idea um, to get that first capital in the door. Um, we really started the business um, on a hunch and about $25,000, and then that went towards um, you know, Kickstarter video, narrative, prototyping the products, um, and just kind of getting that first, the, the wheels turning at uh, the first stage. Yeah, this this, um, this I guess uh, situation you're in where people we told people about the idea, whether it be investors or friends or family, and they told you you're stupid and crazy. Why didn't you listen to them? Like, how did you know to continue to pursue this, uh, you know, I guess dream or goal of yours, even though everyone you were talking to was saying that it was a bad idea? And before you answer, you know, it's it's a common kind of step that people take or suggest that entrepreneurs take is to try to validate the idea, right? Go out there and at least talk to people. Ideally find more ways to uh, measure, I guess, the buyer intent beyond just talking to them. But you, you start off by talking to people and they said that it was a bad idea. How come you continue to pursue it anyway? You know, Felix, we just had a, we had a hunch in our gut. We knew that there was a need for the product and there was a critical mass out there. We just had to find them with the right product market fit. And um, if we could figure out how to market and get in front of the right people, um, then the rest, it was a great quality product. You know, you can't, you can't stand behind a product. It's very, very difficult to sell and have true believers and evangelists if the product isn't great. So that's the most important thing. And we knew people were out there. So first and foremost, everybody has bed sheets. So we knew that there was a humongous market for it. And it's super fragmented. So nobody really knows what brand they're sleeping on. Uh, prior to this, if you rewind two, or two years ago, before this whole craze started, you know, people would go to their you know, designated channel, uh, albeit um, the big box stores, department stores, or Amazon, and they'll just buy whatever fits their price and sounds good. They don't really have any knowledge. Um, we thought if we could stick out from the crowd with a better value proposition in front of the right people, then we could differentiate ourselves. And what we actually did was we took the pen and pencil, um, we went to those stores, those locations, and we interviewed people on the spot, on the sidewalk, in the stores. What are you shopping for? How much are you spending? Um, what are you looking for in a product? Why here? Um, it was quick. It was about 30 seconds, and then we would just move on uh, just to get that validation of you know, what people wanted. And we knew it. We did about 500 people, and we kept hearing the same things over and over. Um, that really gave us the courage to go and pursue it further. 
Yeah, I definitely kind of see the hustle that, that you guys had to go through because, you know, 500 people talking to 500 people is something that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs or people that want to become entrepreneurs don't even think about doing because it sounds so daunting. Uh, yep. so, so you, I think you were, you were hinting at this earlier about how the market at the time was very, just, you know, at the time, I mean, like two years ago, was very commoditized. People didn't know what they were buying. You know, me, myself, I'm definitely guilty of that. I walk into Bed Bath & Beyond when I'm shopping for stuff. I'll, I'll feel it, I guess, with my hands and the price matches my budget. Budget, I'll go ahead and buy. So when you see that, does that th- th- that attracted you to the market rather than made you, I guess, afraid of of the market? Definitely. Um, so we did. You know, Bath Beyond is a publicly traded company, so you can see what their numbers are like, and it's huge in the space. But a very very small sliver of their business is actually online. Most of it's in brick and mortar. So the opportunity lied, you know, for those types of product, household products are online, and that's. There's no doubt that's where all the consumers are going in the future, particularly millennials. Um, I am a very, very big believer in um, having specialty brands. Like I think the future of commerce and e-commerce is brands like ours or you know the Warby Parkers for glasses and so on. It's you do one thing or you know one group of things and you do them really, really well and you're the expert on that. And it's the markets are going to get sliced up into these uh, rather than these big department stores. They're going to be like these micro brands that. Or um, have a lot of expertise, and there was nothing in the space, but there was a lot of opportunity there with millennials and with shopping patterns, which was a signal to us that there could be something there for a lot of money. So you think that this kind of business model could be replicated if you just look for, uh, I guess, markets that are doing really, really well, but mostly in the offline world. And because millennials are now, you know, making money, they're coming into the point in their lives where they have careers and ready to spend money on on products, and they're going online first. That that's an opportunity that you that you you know could potentially not necessarily replicate the exact business that you have, but at least uh, be the genesis of an idea that's similar to the genesis of the idea for for you guys. No doubt, but it, I think the market has to be big enough. Um, we pursued a market that's huge, and it's something everybody has. So the way we look at it is, almost everybody in the room or in the building, wherever you are, is going to buy sheets at some point. And statistics say it's going to be in the next 24 months um, is the cycle for people to buy sheets. And at that point, they're going to do exactly what you did. They're going to go to Bed Bath Beyond, walk in, and then the last thing they want to do is go back to Bed Bath Beyond. So they'll buy whatever whatever looks best at that moment and walk out. So it's about staying relevant and getting in front of them. And you know, it's kind of like Inception, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Like if you can implant in their mind that they need this and you have a better product than the rest, and they don't have to go to the store, then it kind of becomes a no-brainer um, to make the purchase for them. It's more convenient. It's higher quality. Um, every it ticks every box. Yeah, so let's talk about this a little bit more. And, and I, I love to hear kind of your explanation of how you, and this is obviously probably a huge conversation, but I want to ask anyway, how do you position yourself in a marketplace that is commoditized, a marketplace where people are like me that was going to a store and just you know buy whatever is out there and not really understand what kind of brands are out there? How do you position yourself as like the kind of premium brand that people should not necessarily go out there, go, go out of their way, but I guess take a risk on and purchase from them for the first time? Yeah, well, so what differentiates us um, from the get-go, for instance, um, from some of the uh, mattress companies, for example, is that uh, we are a brand and we want to be a lifestyle brand from from day one. So we didn't want to be the Brooklyn in sheets. We want to be Brooklyn the brand, and this brand stands for a certain lifestyle, a certain quality, 
you could see it in our photography. Our photo shoots are very real. We use real people that are here from Brooklyn. Um, all are millennials. We shoot them in lofts here in the city that are have a very certain look, and it's an aspirational lifestyle. And that's not something that's very ever been pitched really in this product prior to us. It's always you know carpeted room in a, in a house someplace that's you know very set up a certain way. When the reality is most people don't live like that, and they can't see themselves in the product. So if you can have them visualize themselves in the product, and they love and it's aspirational for them, then it makes it a lot easier to connect with the customer. And that's, you know, that's part of the whole website strategy as well of you know, appealing to that demographic. We know who our customer is and we've tailored the whole experience around you know, pleasing them. Yeah, I love that. I don't want to kind of, re- I think it's worth repeating is that if you are in a commoditized market or you're in a market where there's really no strong brand out there, the approach that you guys have taken is to turn it into more of a lifestyle brand, make an aspirational lifestyle for your customers that if they purchase the, your, your products, they could live a particular lifestyle that you represent in your website and your social media and make it aspiration for them so that they feel like they have to have this product, this specific product, not just to have bed sheets in general, but to have a Brooklyn in product. I think that's a really important point, and I, and I think you hit, really hit the nail on the head. Um, so one thing you are saying, talking about a little bit earlier was about how you overcame the, I guess, objections from your from investors and people that you talked to about your product uh, because you or you had a feeling that there would be a product market fit. So, can you talk to a little bit, talk to us a little bit more about this? Like, what is you know for anyone out there that might not know, what is a product market fit, and how do you determine if you have it or not? Yeah, um, it's it's actually quite hard to describe in in a few words, yeah. but I think it has to do with um, aligning the brand, the vision, um, the the price of it, and the quality and the pitch um, all to the market that you're positioning it towards that is obviously big enough to serve is because you don't want to, I wouldn't recommend an entrepreneur to go after a market that's, you know, very, very, very niche and very small, but in order to cater, cater to market, you have to tick all the boxes and our price point, um, the way we really, I can actually give an anecdote over here. The way we approached it is after doing those interviews, we kept hearing the same numbers and the same type of experience that people wanted to have. But it made it quite easy to figure out how we had to position the product to them. So if we kept hearing from people like, yeah, you know, I spent 70 bucks, but if it was a really cool brand and it was really awesome quality, I'd spend 100 to 150 bucks. But anything more than that's probably like a tough decision. I have to do more research. And we kept hearing that and hearing that and hearing that. So we're like, okay, this product, we got to position the best product we can no matter what in that price range. And that's what we did. And then from that point, we backed into what is the best product we can offer at that price so mm. it fits for that customer. Rather than the other approach would be like, let's just buy the best product and serve it up and see how many people buy. Um, then it's a little bit more of a gamble. Um, we did our homework first so we knew what we were getting into. Yeah, and I, you know, going back to this survey thing, I think uh, I think it's um, a great first step that that you guys took. You survey, you know, five hundred people. You listen for patterns, listen for the same terms, listen for the same price points. They're coming over and over again. Do you think that? Uh, you know, if someone doesn't have uh, the, I don't want to say the opportunity, but maybe they are in a market where it's harder to reach these people in person, could you replicate this kind of surveying online too, or do you think it's only possible to do in person? I think it's better in person, but it really depends on the business. I think there's a lot of tools out there like SurveyMonkey or Qualtrics um, coupled with social networks that make it very accessible. 
And what we found is you just have to be really, really humble about the approach and ask people, recognize that they're doing you a favor. You know, this survey will only take, you know, 30 seconds tops. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm doing it so I can launch this business. You know, people will probably roll their eyes and be hassled by it. But if you bug them just to get the information and you're humble about it, then, um, then they'll do you a favor. And it's really, really important to go to friends and family for that kind of information, to get honest information, and you know, hopefully they can share it and open up their networks, and then you get that whole network effect um, as it branches out. And we did that also, in addition to going out on the streets, um, we used uh, Qualtrics to um, survey um, people out uh, via Facebook. We just asked friends to share and share and share, um, so it just got wider and wider and wider, and we got a few hundred more um, that way to couple with our in-person interviews. Yeah, so it sounds like you want to make these surveys, these questions brief, because like you're saying, you are, uh, you know, could be inconveniencing people and you don't want to take up too much of their time since they're doing you a favor. So in that short period of time, like, how did you decide what questions were most important to ask? That's, that's a tough, that's a tough question. Um, Maybe what questions did you ask? Oh, geez, this was uh, nearly three years ago. This was the end of 2013 before we even like decided to get moving to do Kickstarter. Um, you know, it had a lot to do with pricing and shopping habits. I didn't want to ask leading questions that, you know, I'm starting a bedsheets business and this is what I want, because then people will tell you what you want to hear. Um, you have to skirt around it a little bit to be more strategic. Mm -hmm. So do you shop online? Do you buy your clothes online? How often do you shop online? Have you ever bought home goods online? And you kind of got to get closer and closer and closer. So they won't know where you're going with this until the very end, but you'll collect enough information. And it's all about you know, frequency, um, recency, and pricing, I guess, is the, are the most important. Um, you want to purchase, you want to sell a product that people will love and will want to buy again, 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 so you could keep them as customers for life. Yeah, so I think you, one thing you said was really important there about creating these surveys is that you don't want to ask leading questions because people in general, when they're approached by strangers or, or friends, they want to do well in the, in the, in the you know, conversation because when you start asking the questions, they want to give you the right, you know, quote unquote, right answers to, to you know, please you essentially. So when you do start at leading, asking leading questions and give them a hint of where you're trying to go with it, then they're going to, they're, the answers are going to be biased. And I think that's exactly what you're getting at. And that's why, you know, surveying is definitely very tricky. And I think um, there's, you know, tons of ways for, or tons of information out there on how to survey correctly. But I think you hit the nail on the head about trying not to, try to be, I guess, a little bit vague in, in, the, in, your, in, your, in your actual goal at the end of the day so that they don't know exactly where you're trying to get with it. Yeah. And, and you also, uh, just one more note on the surveying, um, you have to also condition yourself. It's very easy to have thin skin, and when somebody tells you something that's not necessarily great or that you didn't think of, that you're going to go and optimize towards that. So if somebody said in my survey that I won't spend more than 20 bucks on sheets, you know, a, nat a natural human reaction would be like, oh, no, there's people out there that won't even bother spending more than 20 bucks. we got to go cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. But you really got to block out the noise on both ends of the spectrum to to really get the true pulse. Mm, makes a lot of sense. So, you know, because this was your first uh, business for both of you, what are some, what were some, I guess, big skills that you had to, to learn immediately? You know, the business has only been around for less than two years. So I can't imagine that's, you know, that much time to learn a lot of things, but I'm, I'm assuming that you had to pick up a lot of skills quickly. What, what are some of the things that you had to, to learn? Oh, geez. Um, digital marketing. I know that's the most generic and, <laughs> um, 
generic in general term, but you know, customer acquisition in general. Um, a lot of people tend to think, myself included, um, you have a great product, and if you build a great-looking website, people will come, and you're going to sell millions of units. Um, it doesn't really work like that in in our reality. So having new strategies to acquire customers and drive traffic to the site is definitely the hardest piece to learn with no prior experience, um, and to do that efficiently. Um, I like to say it's not a magic trick to sell a dollar for eighty cents. So you know it's easy to throw money away and do that and get people to the site, but to do it efficiently in a responsible way that you're actually making money is very challenging. And that was the most um, challenging piece of how to kind of layer the pieces on top of the site to to make that most efficient. Yeah. So customer acquisition, that's definitely, uh, uh, you, you have that skill, like you have a business essentially, right? If you're able to acquire customers profitably, efficiently, like you say, you have a business. So if you had to start over, what's the fastest way to learn how to acquire customers? Oh, well, be humble and ask a lot of questions. I take a lot of time. A big part of my week is, uh, my work week is networking and having meetings with um, other entrepreneurs, other CMOs and CEOs just to learn different strategies, uh, what's working, what's not working, how can we help each other. And you just get tidbits, you know, you get a little nugget from somebody everywhere, even in other industries, and you just have to figure out how that can help your business and put it all together um, is really the part that kind of, you know, goes on top of the website to, to make it better and more efficient continuously. And it really never ends is the, is the honest truth. Yeah, um, which is a challenging part. No, for sure. And I, there's just like so much information out there. How do you personally filter what is actually good advice versus what could be, you know, not necessarily bad advice, but bad advice for your situation and for your company? So, you know, as I said er, at first, we did not get any uh, institutional funding to start the business. We bootstrapped it, which in hindsight, where we are now was the best thing that could have ever happened to us. Obviously, you know, you feel desperate at the time and as you need it, everybody's getting VC funding. It's all you hear about and read about in Mashable or TechCrunch, tech mm-hmm. um, but it's not the most important thing. What it actually taught us was how to be very responsible and how to be very efficient and test a lot in terms of, and use data. That's the most important part for us. So we test everything. Anything anyone tells me, I will give it a shot in with a small budget and see what happens. And if the numbers jive, I mean, we have a, we have a marketing model where you know, it looks at you know, CPM, CPC, CPA, that all backs into each other you know, and, and conversion rate. So we know if the strategy will work or not, and we'll test anything. So um, yeah, it's really about testing, testing, testing uh, until you find what works in your potion. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that that's definitely the the great approach. You know, t- testing everything, uh, testing all your hypotheses, and then of course, actually being able to track all of it. So, can you you know give us an idea of how to set something like this up? Like maybe do you have an example of something in the past where you you did test and how did you set up the test and how did you track the the data? Yeah, um, oof, there's there's tons of times so I could do it. Um, you know, you you just have. You have these conversations with other founders um, at different stages. Ideally, you want them, the ideal scenario is you know, talk to somebody that's just one step ahead of you that's mm-hmm. done this before so you could get an idea of what works and what doesn't work. You know, anecdotally, I'd say the first thing you know, out of the gate that changed the business at the first level was email. So, you know, I, I wasn't a big believer. I'm actually not very receptive to marketing emails myself, but it's the most important thing um, for an e-commerce company, without a doubt, is having a good drip campaign and you know, really making the most of the leads you capture. So, you know, you start off with tools that are cheaper, free, like a, like a Mailchimp, and you see 
you know, and the free pop-up widgets or, you know, some of the $10 apps that you can get. And then you, you capture emails and you test, you test different messaging, you test different codes, different offers and so on. And then you see what works. And, you know, if it's, you know, a, a discount for first time customers, if it's free shipping, if it's, um, different value propositions you pitch, you, you find out what works and you A-B test it and then you keep layering it on. You say, okay, that works for, for this. Let's move on to the next thing and see how we can convert them faster or more efficiently and so on. Uh, email was the first uh, where we did a lot of testing and you know, very cheaply. I mean, now we have a way more robust um, email campaign with a lot of A-B tests on every email we send and um, a lot of segmentation, but it took a while to build to that point. So is it is this a boil down to just you getting great ideas from successful people, testing it out, setting up a test to see if it works for your particular market, for your business? If it works, keep it, and then just kind of cycling through this over and over again? Is that what your key to success for you? That's the exercise. You yeah. keep it, and then you move on to the next thing. And you know you have the funnel from end to end. You know When somebody discovers the brand and how you're going to get them to check out at the end, and there's so many pieces in between, like what's on your product details page? What's your return policy? What's your FAQ? What? How are you capturing emails? How often are you emailing them? You know, what are you? You know, how are you retargeting them on different networks or wherever they are? And it's just like you have to fill the gap in between from end to end, so you've got it completely covered. And then it really you, you close the loop, and you got uh, like an airtight machine at that point where you control the entire customer's experience, and it's repeatable. So every person that discovers our brand, we're pretty confident that they have the same experience from end to end with us, even when they're interacting with our customer service team. Yeah, so you know, I can imagine some listeners out there might be saying, yeah, you know, it might be, uh, this sounds like all great and everything, but it might be real easy for Rich because he has a successful business now, lots of traffic, so it's easy for him to test because there's, you know, a lot of people to test with. So if someone out there is just starting out and doesn't have, you know, the traffic yet, what do you think are some important tests to try to conduct very early on in your business when you don't have much revenue, you don't have many sales, you don't have many customers? Yeah, um, you know, paying for sponsored content is something that took us a while to do, um, and you can test that very, very small. Um, either I'll be on Instagram or with smaller broad bloggers. You can go to, you know, the biggest influencer in the world, and you're paying, you know, twenty, thirty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars for it. But you can also go to, mm-hmm. you know, more niche publications or bloggers where you can try the same strategy, except for a couple hundred bucks, or even have them try your product. Um, it took us a long time to pay. We would just gift product and say. Hey, these are sheets. These are awesome. Sleep on them. Let us know what you think. And people were very, very receptive. And that was free. And when we see how that works, we're like, wow, this person has 5,000 people come to their blog. What happens if the person has 50,000 people or 500,000 people? And yeah, those initiatives get more expensive, but it gets more predictable in terms of ROI on those initiatives. So when you are spending the money, it's not as much of a gamble. Like if I told you we're going to pay you know, $10,000 to this blogger to plug the product, um, I can pretty much tell you what that'll return for us based on their engagement levels and who their readers are. Um, and level one, we did it with way more niche and smaller people and people through Instagram or Facebook, and we would just gift them free products. So it would cost us nothing but the product. And if you're confident in your product that you have a great something great that you're selling, then it should take care of itself. And then you could test that on a small scale so you know what happens when you pay somebody huge. 
I like that. Test something at a small scale that can eventually be scaled up and scale with your business, which sounds like exactly what you guys were able to do. Um, so, you know, beginning of this kind of uh, exercise that we were talking about, you know, get ideas from successful people, test it out. If it works, keep it. If it doesn't, move on from it. How do you, you know, network with these successful people? How have you been able to connect with people that are, you know, just a step ahead of you or that have been on the path that you are currently on? Yeah, um, it takes... Um it takes some some balls to reach out to people and just yeah. do it cold. And uh, sorry for the language, but yeah, you just have to be humble and reach out. Um, in the early days, when we were getting you know ten sales a day, I would see every order ticket that came in, and I could see who they are. And I have you know a tool like Reportive on my Gmail. So what that plugin does is it tells me, okay, it'll read my Shopify order ticket and tell me, you know, Felix hosts the Shopify Masters podcast. So at that stage, if you were one of my first customers, I would have no shame in reaching out and being like, hey, Felix, thanks for uh, purchasing. You know, I'd love to get on the phone with you for 10 minutes to just talk about what we're doing and see if you have any advice. Uh, I see that you're driving 100,000 people to your, to your site. Um, would love to see what's working for you. you know, if you're not in a competitive space, people are generally willing to share and exchange ideas because you never know what someone's going to grow into. You know, at that point, we had 10 sales a day. Now it's a totally different story, and we have tons of people doing that, and I'm willing to give people the same time that others gave me. So it's just about being humble and reaching out to people for, for advice. Mm, so you were, were you reaching out to customers at first that, that you had come across? Was that your first, I guess, foot in the door with you know, meeting successful people? Yes, absolutely. It's, uh, it's customers. Um, you know, generally, when you have, generally cu- our first customers, um, I would say for a lot of you know, niche products or, you know, a lot of Shopify stores in general, people are going to discover products and they're early adopters of something new. And they take great pride in being like, oh, I discovered this brand and I'm the first of my friends. And they have pride in that. So if you're humble and you go to them and you ask for their feedback or for any tips they may have, be like, hey, how was your shopping experience with us? You know, I'd love to get your take. And somebody's like, uh, you know, the checkout process was a little bit confusing. You know, you can take that and adapt that information really quickly. Because like I said, if you have 10 customers in the early days per day and one or two of them says this that's a significant percentage so then it really dictates what's going wrong with the with the people that aren't checking out for instance so it's about being humble and outreach just to get in touch with people and get the information Mm, makes sense. And do you find that, I think, you know, for people that are uh, maybe scared or, or shy to reach out to people that they don't know, it's usually because they, you know, think that, you know, why would this person want to talk to me? Why, what do they get out of it? Did you have those kind of um, hesitations at first? And like, if you did, like, how did you get over them? You know, in the early days, you really don't have much to lose and you have everything to gain at that point. You know, I, there was times, you know, too long ago where, you know, you think you're you're close to the end, and you know one or two more weeks like this, and we're going to be out of business. So you could only improve at that point, and you just have to have the courage to reach out and be humble and take people's advice. If you're stubborn and you think your way is the best, then you're going to get stuck, and it's going to be very, very hard to evolve with times and get better tools. Um, I, I really, really am a firm believer in, in networking and just getting little tips from people. And if you keep hearing the same thing over and over, then it, then it's got to be true. Uh, for people that aren't telling you this, and it happens for us all the time. It's important to to reach out. You know, from time to time, you know, one of our shipping um, methods will go down. For example, so it'll say, um, you know, ground shipping, like it's not showing a rate, and it one person will write in and say, "Hey guys, 
uh, your shipping is not displaying a rate. And you know, there was 100 people before that that just didn't even bother to write in. So you have to get in front of that and be proactive and reach out to people so you could learn as fast as possible. It's really, really about speed and learning fast. Unless you have unlimited money, <laughs> then it's not a problem. But <laughs> No, that, yeah, definitely not. And I, I, I want to go back to this. I want to repeat this again because I think it's so, I love that you're, the way you've grown the business is so straightforward. I mean, there's definitely a lot of challenges, but it boils down to something still very straightforward, which is that you listen to a lot of people, whether it be customers or other business people, other entrepreneurs, get as much, get as many ideas as possible, as much feedback as possible from them. Find out ways to test to see if their feedback is actually makes sense. And that's actually scalable feedback in the sense that other people are going to want or, go, or would give the same type of feedback and then see if it's successful or not. If it is, keep it going and then kind of keep cycling through this. And I just want to repeat it again because I think that 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 if a lot of if entrepreneurs out there are listening to just follow that model, you will definitely make a progress. You know, maybe not as successful as you guys have gotten or maybe as successful, but it's definitely going to help you move in the right direction. Yeah, I, I think I'll add one more thing on how I, how I go about it. My entire mentality of how I've built my team is I don't love generalists in general. I like to be the only generalist in the room on our team, and I like having a team of specialists that I work with that I can count on for expertise to execute the things that I know nothing about, and I have to be confident enough to say that I know nothing about them. So when I have these conversations with people and they're like, Rich, um, Google search you know, has really changed the business and really you know, gotten us, you know, a lot more traffic, for example, something like that, that I'd say, okay, who is the best, what's the best solution I can have to do this? Am I going to hire somebody that, you know, is going to learn it on the fly on my dime? Or no, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to see, you know, who's doing this, what type of resume do they have at some of the biggest companies in the world? And how do I track down that archetypical person, albeit an agency or a person, and I want a master to come in and execute like a surgeon and fix that problem for me. And then I'll move on to the next one once I plug that hole one at a time sequentially. And that's how I built my entire team. Everybody's a specialist in one discipline. I love that. And, and, you know, when you are a generalist or, you know, anyone out there that is running a business, there are going to be holes in your, your skill set. There are going to be holes in your business and you need to fill those, those gaps with specialists. And I think the, the concern is that when you are just a generalist or when you don't have a skill in a particular area, how do you vet a specialist in that area? How do you know that they're actually knowledgeable when you are not knowledgeable yourself? You interview many of them and have many conversations. There's no shortcut here. So, um, you know, if you talk about the most the most easy example that is is Google search for an e-commerce company. We had to interview you know 15 agencies and 10 different people that actually do that before we we kept hearing the same thing and we kept hearing everybody's different strategy and their pitch mm. until you like filter it through and you're like okay. This guy understands what we're doing, or girl, or agency, or whoever it is. You say, this person understands us, um, and we really like the way they think about it. They think very similarly to us, and we feel comfortable giving them our money and our budget to accomplish the same goals. And it, it, it's very, very... Um, it equates to an orchestra, and I consider myself as CEO to be the conductor of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. You don't want a bunch of musicians out there. You want the cellist to play the cello. You want the pianist to play the piano. You want people that are masters to get the best sound out of the orchestra. And it's my job to be the conductor, and that's kind of the way uh, I built the, the whole unit. And how did you? How were you able to identify what position you should hire for first? And for anyone else out there that's listening. That, that has the, the budget or the revenue to make their first hire, how should they think through wh- who should I bring on, what role should I bring on to my company first? 
Um, I have a, I have a very very easy answer for that. When it's taking you or me too much time to do that task, then it's time to pass it on to somebody else. And I've done every role, uh, with the exception of my co-founder and partner Vicky, um, who does our PR and our social, and that's her. Like all the communication stuff is hers. I've done most of the other stuff to a point where I can't do it anymore. So if I was forecasting inventory, I was doing that, of course, when it was just the two of us, until the point where I couldn't juggle the marketing and the inventory. I had to hire somebody to help me manage that. Uh, We were packing our own boxes uh, in our apartment for the first uh, 2,000 orders until we were packing until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then I had a few hours in the day to actually grow the business. I was like, okay, I need to free up the time and get a solution for fulfilling orders. And I did the same thing for customer service when it took too long to answer all the tickets because there were just too many. I had to. I knew that was a signal. I had to hire somebody so I could concentrate on the growth stuff. And we repeated that exercise over and over, pretty much with every task as we've grown. Yeah. So you know, as a CEO, if you are like you are, or if anyone else out there is a sole, a single founder, single entrepreneur working by themselves, is there any role or any, I guess, skill set or any, I guess, function that? you as a CEO should hold on to forever or is it for a long time, even if it takes you a chunk of your day or a good amount of your time? I think the last piece that I will relinquish eventually, I I, I love my team. We have a great team. We work well together and we're all on the same page. The last piece I'll relinquish is the, the financial aspect and the CFO duties that I have. And the reason is, is because, uh, like I said, Vicky and I built this from just the two of us in our apartment, and I've been so disciplined about what we test, what we spend, and how we budget things. So until I have, you know, uh, until I have somebody that has that same like respect for every dollar that we've built since we bootstrapped this whole thing, um, I'll be very, very reluctant to give that piece up. Last, I don't want people spending writing checks for the company um, that I won't. Mm, makes a lot of sense. So, Leah, let's now talk about the very, I guess, beginning of this. So, it sounded like you originally tried to get outside funding, some institutional mm-hmm. investment for for the business, um, didn't work out. And this, was that when you first turned to Kickstarter, when you guys realized like there's no one, no one's going to fund us. Let's just do this ourselves. Yeah, uh, that was the first signal. Um, we probably had had a dozen meetings um, through um, NYU, where Vicky and I both went. Um, we got connected with some VCs and. It just wasn't a sexy enough idea for a lot of them, and there wasn't enough traction, so we had to prove it ourselves um, without that funding uh, to get it going. Um, we had to go and prove that there was a market for it and there were people that wanted it. Um, so what we did was Kickstarter was the logical choice to reach that people and validate it. And the amount of money you raise on Kickstarter is actually pretty tricky because we we set the bar at $50,000 because we knew that if we spent 20000 if we um, sold twenty thousand dollars worth of product or ten thousand. Like, yeah, we could pat ourselves on the back, but that's not really a huge business where we should like pursue that for the rest of our careers. It would have been more of like a hassle just to go through the fulfillment process, and who knows how big it would have been. Um, Fifty thousand was like okay, you know, if we put that over a year, that's you know almost a million dollars, and um, it could be it could be something bigger. Um, but we ended up doing a quarter million dollars and it kind of proved the concept for himself. And then you go back to the VCs at that point or the investors in general, and then they say, okay, <laughs> it's too early. Um, we need to see more. Or can you do it not on Kickstarter? Or what is next? Or how do you scale this? There's always questions. And you know, I'm not shy about saying I must have had you know, 30 or 40 meetings with VCs and every single one um, told us no. And it only you know, motivated us more to prove that we were right and we can do this without them. 
Yeah. So again, you said fifty thousand dollar goal raised uh, two hundred and thirty seven thousand uh, dollars from one thousand seven hundred and thirty three backers. So how did you do it? Like, how were you able to? You started. You had this idea. You you put the the money into. It sounded like you invested some money into the the video and actually putting together the the Kickstarter page. How did you actually promote it? How were you able to get the first kind of backers? It's a it's a good story. Um, we have done so much for this business um, with the sharing economy and social networks as cheaply as we could, and we were forced to, and it was all for the best. And for whoever is listening that are is in the same boat or may not have that VC funding, it's it's totally possible to do anything with the tools that are out there. Um, we rented a zip car. Um, Vicky's background was in public relations, so she knew how to communicate with bloggers and editors and magazines and so on, but she didn't have these connections in the home space or the lifestyle space. She actually worked in beauty before. So we packed up about 50 sets of prototypes and we packed them in like a zip car, a van that we rented, and we drove around New York City um, just dropping them off at the magazine buildings uh, for Condé Nast or for Hearst or for apartment therapy. It was really, really important for us in our space. And we just dropped them off with handwritten notes and said, hey, we're a husband and wife team. We want to kind of reinvent the sheet, the bedsheet space. This is our product. This is how we made it. Let us know what you think. And yeah, we ate the cost of all those units, um, which ended up being you know several thousand dollars and the cost of shuttling it around. And we did it all ourselves. But you know, people appreciate the scrappiness and the resourcefulness, and we actually got written about by about 22 out of the, the 50 or 60 that we sent, which is an amazing conversion rate for that. And they said, you know, look at the startup doing this, husband and wife team, you know, trying to, you know, kill what's a commoditized space um, and make people inspired to, to do something better there. So we did that. Um, you know, when we got the orders in from Kickstarter, we actually hired Task Rabbits to help us pack them up, the boxes, by the hour. Um, for courier service, we used Ubers. We kind of sent them with Uber Rush around. Like we did everything as cheap and efficiently as we could um, um, until we had the capital that we generated ourselves to actually do things in a more robust manner. Mm, so I think I, I'd like that you guys had a story it's to, to tell as well outside of the product. It wasn't just here's a great product. You guys had a story of you know a husband and wife team trying to take down this kind of you know giant uh, you know brick and mortar physical retail business by going direct to consumer. I like that there was a story behind it as well, not just again pushing the product in front of these uh, PR outlets. Uh, so once you were able to successfully launch this campaign, how did you? How were you able to drive the the buzz, or were you able to drive the buzz from Kickstarter over to your your Shopify site? Super hard. Um, that period in between Kickstarter and like actually launching the business to be its own freestanding business is very very hard to maintain momentum. Uh, Kickstarters get a lot of buzz um, in general because the ideas are generally novel, and then you put up you know the as seen in X Y Z publication on your Kickstarter, and that kind of just breeds more traction and so on. But once it's over, it's on you to actually, you, the, the founders and the entrepreneurs, to keep that going. And that was very, very hard. And that's when I kind of hit the streets and I was having these conversations. And I knew I couldn't sell anybody at that point, but I couldn't lose the momentum. So we started to collect emails and uh, over-communicated with the people that were our Kickstarter people, um, our backers, to treat them like family. So we knew that was our ticket. Our early adopters were our ticket to more customers. And if they all told one or two people, then it would just kind of blossom and snowball from there. So we over-communicated um, emails that were 
not too frequent where we annoy them, but frequent enough where they're in the loop. And we said, hey, you know, first round of production is done. We're ahead of schedule. It's on the boat on the way here or the cotton's done, you know, and so on. And people like that. You make them feel like they're very, very much involved. And those 1,700 people that backed us, we make them feel like their family and their founders. And we still communicate that in special emails that we send to them as well. We say, you know, we consider you all founders of the company because you helped us get started um, and, you know, get the ball rolling here. So it's really, really about taking care of every customer at the first phase. Um, Mm. It's really, really critical to the business. So one one thing that uh, you guys had mentioned uh, during, I guess, the, the pre-interview was about how email was uh, is an important channel for you guys, and you mentioned that just now too. So is the goal? What was the goal of email? Just to keep in touch with uh, with the, the I guess the original backers, original customers, so that they would spread your product word of mouth. Like, what was the I guess strategy behind uh, behind uh, keeping in touch with them through email? Um. Prior to the store launching in that yeah. October, yeah, I guess just in general, like what is the I guess the overall goal when it comes to to your email strategy? It's staying relevant and top of mind for people. So, uh, in particular, with Kickstarter, uh, I don't want to dwell too much on the Kickstarter aspect of this and more of the store. But you know, people tend to back things and forget about it. But we wanted to make them feel very, very involved. Like we were taking this seriously, and we wanted to deliver the product that we promised them. So what we did was we, we over-communicated, as I said, and then we, that helped drive people to the site for updates. And if they told people thereafter about it, we, were collect, we had a little modal on the, on the homepage that collected email. And we said, you know, give us your email and you'll, be, you'll, you'll get early access to when we're back in stock um, and we launch the store. And we incentivized people with early access then, and people to refer other people um, and that's how we got that email list of a few thousand people to start on day one. And we converted so many people because those people were so genuinely excited and interested in the product. And it's about just keeping up momentum and email's a great communication to, to do that. So I want to I want to make sure that I want to clarify this um, with your with your Kickstarter camp because I've heard the same thing from other entrepreneurs about how you want to stay you want to over communicate with your backers. Most people will post in the updates of your Kickstarter. You're talking about not just skipping over that, but you're talking about going to email as well, right? You're emailing the, the you have an email list of people that have backed it, and you're sending emails to the inbox and not just the updates on Kickstarter. Correct, and it's personal emails from the founding team or the founder um, myself. And, you know, when we were delayed in production, I fell on the sword. And I, I think people appreciate that, you know, that I said, I'm sorry that I, you know, overpromised on the delivery date. We had a production setback. This is our first time doing it. Please bear with us. And you tend to get responses from people like, it's okay. I appreciate the honesty and the persistence. People just want to be included and, and be in the loop. And as long as you're doing that, then, then they're okay with it. It's when you disappear and you're nowhere, then people start to get angry, and that's when they don't love the company, love the brand. Mm, makes sense. So one thing I noticed when I was just browsing through your site um, earlier was that there the kind of um, email um, welcome ad pop up thing. It would, the, the incentive to give my email address is to get a free shipping as I guess your your lead magnet. So was this something that you you tested for a while? How did you know to choose free shipping? Because it's not the, fir- the first time I've heard of people taking the same approach where they offer free shipping as an incentive for people to give their email address up. So it's Tell us about your your experience with this uh, lead magnet, I guess, as a way to generate or to, to grow your email list. Well, some of the early advice um, 
we received was nobody wants to give you their email address for free. You have to offer them something in exchange mm-hmm. um, to do this. Um, and if it's information, if it's early access, if it's shipping, if it's a discount and so on. And I'm really, really, I, I cringe on discounts. I really don't like that. It, it kind of devalues the product. Uh, we don't go on sale. Um, so we test and we still are testing. That's actually an A-B test there of if it's first shipping or, you know, I've seen other brands that give you, and they've, I spoke to a founder of another brand that puts $7 in your cart towards your purchase. And they say they tested $5, $10, $15, and $7 just gets people going the most. And it's just about testing numbers. And we do the same. Um, sometimes we have some offers, some sweepstakes, um, enter for your chance this week to, to win a comforter or to win a hardcore bundle, um, People just need some kind of motivation to to actually give you the uh, the information. So that's a great great opportunity to test right up front. Mm-hmm. So when you do get the, when you have this email list, like uh, what are you sending the sending to your email list, and how frequently are you emailing them? We email pretty pretty frequently. Um, we do um, a campaign email um, once a week, um, but we also have drip campaigns, um, and the drip campaigns are are critical because that's the way of standardizing our customer experience and that allows you to test so we um, typically do you know a few emails in the first two days the first uh, few days when the customers are in market um, the thought behind that is you know if they got to your site they got to it because there was some small or big degree of interest in either the company or the product and if you're pitching it well and if they're genuinely interested, they're going to buy either from you or a competitor or someplace else within the next few days. So you want to communicate you know, your value proposition as fast and efficiently as possible. So we've tested the cadence. Um, if it's you know day one, day three, day five, day four, day seven, whatever it is, um, I don't want to give you know, too many details about where we are right now, but we test and we slide it around and we say, okay, what if we tell them about our great reviews on day two? Or what if we show them our new product releases on day two instead of the reviews and the reviews on day five? And you slide it around and you kind of see what people engage with the best. And it should be, in the early days, it's so noticeable because you know if you jump from 10 sales to 15 sales, you got a 50% increase mm-hmm. you know, right off the bat. And it's, it, it's way easier to notice the differences. So um, what are some, you know, so you said reviews, sometimes you'll post that like some social proof or you're not post, but your email, social proof or your email, then about new products. What are some other important messages or important types of emails to, to get across in a drip campaign? You know, I think in our drip campaign, um, currently we have like one product or like sales email and it's not the first one. Um, we have a, a kind of funny email that welcomes people to the list. Um, we don't like to take ourselves too seriously. Um, we are like a, a bedsheet friend, you know, so we don't want to like act like we're, we're so, we're so serious about it. Um, it's a fun product. It's a fun space. People sleep in it. People are romantic in it and so on. So we kind of play off that. We give people content of, you know, what are four quick tips that you can spruce up your space with? Um, you know, if it's not our stuff, one is buy sheets, but the other one is you know buy a plant for your bedroom, buy a candle, um, you know, and so on. Just like little tips, little nuggets of information that people might appreciate. That we're not trying to be so salesy. You know, we're not, and not everything is like buy our sheets, buy our pillows, buy this, buy mm-hmm. that. Uh, it's it's we're helping you. We're your advocate, and at the end of the day. Not everyone's going to buy from us. Um, you know, most people are not are not going to. You know, the line share ninety plus percent. Um, 
but we want them to have a good experience with us and with the brand. So at least they think that we're good people and we're, we're honest people and we're trying to help and we're advocate. So when the time comes, they'll come back around. And that's how we treat everybody. And that's what we try to communicate first and foremost, that we're like, we're good people and our interest is not to like scam you. Mm-hmm. So one other thing you mentioned in the pre-interview was about how you guys like to focus on not just how to get the customers, but then how to keep them. So talk to, talk to us a little bit about that. Like what, are, what, is it, what do you mean by keeping customers and what are some effective ways for you to do that? At, at NYU, um, one of my favorite um, marketing professors um, taught us this example. with uh, He called it the clock model, and it was uh, a circle divided up into to three slices of a pie. And it was the pre-purchase experience, the product experience that you purchase, and the post-purchase experience. And you, he explained that you need to, it's very hard to master all three, but you better make sure that you master at least one if you want to have a strong brand. And you know, from day one, I knew the product wasn't going to be perfect because this is our first, like I said, I'm a first-time entrepreneur and I have no experience in textiles or sheet space. I, we're a self-taught of everything we did. So I knew the product would be as good as we could get it, but not perfect. We didn't have the budget to have like this amazing campaign for pre-purchase, for, for marketing and awareness. So I knew the thing that I could do best was post-purchase, communicate with the customers and take care of those customers and try and get referrals out of them, try and get repeat purchases out of them. And then I could grow it from that angle and kind of reverse from the back end back to the front. And that'll bring us more customers. So we put an overemphasis on communication with our customers um, even with a returns process, um, we don't automate that. It's something that we take personally. We want to know the feedback as to why people are returning it. And we don't make it difficult for anyone. We just want to know some feedback. And then we facilitate it with people, not with, um, not with like third-party apps that could do that more easily. And it's about taking care of the people. And if you communicate that, like, hey, even if you want to return the product, um, tell us why we value your feedback and we'll do better next time. People appreciate that. And that's kind of how we envision it. And you have customers for life that way. Mm, yeah. So great customer service, uh, return policy. Are you, are you, do you drop, do you put them into another type of drip campaign or anything or communicate to them differently once they Absolutely. have made a, a purchase? Every, every situation is customized at, at this point. And I should say that it took a long, long time and we've moved um, from three ESPs along the way to get where we are now with the exact uh, features we want. But um, new leads that come in from different sources have different ex- email experiences. Um, customers, first-time purchase, second-time purchase, third-time purchase have different messaging and different, um, you know, we do things differently with them and communicate differently. Um, everything is customized at this point. But it was built email by email and step by step over the way until we've built this, this entire network. So it's a system. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely see that theme uh, throughout this conversation about how you have a methodical, systematic approach and everything. And I think that's really mm-hmm. key to making the kind of progress you guys have had. You know, again, you launched a business less than two years ago, quarter million dollars raised raised on Kickstarter. How successful has the business uh, grown to today since the I guess the the launch? I mean, it's it's huge. Um, last year, um, you know that that was. Kickstarter was April 2014. We came out of the gates and um, did in that Q4 after we launched, we probably did another quarter million or so of sales for that first year, about half a million. Um, we quadrupled the second year um, to about two million last year. And that was, again, on a shoestring budget of marketing. It was mostly referrals and organic. And this year has been you know pretty explosive for us. We'll, we'll easily surpass eight figures. Um, soon 
And it just, we have it, we're fortunate. I'm so methodical and kind of building, I'm building, I'm building. We've never had a month that was smaller than the previous month since day one, um, just because it's been a slow, sustained, steady growth rather than anything that's like, there's no silver bullet in this game. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And I think maybe to close out on this, you guys obviously move very quickly with the growth of the business, with setting up all the systems, with setting up all the marketing. What do you think makes other business owners, uh, people, and entrepreneurs slow? Like, What is it that you think slows them down the most that maybe you or your team have been able to break through and be able to execute so quickly? Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question to end on. Um, what makes people slow? I would say their resistance to learn and to be humble. Um, I think it's a theme that I keep repeating is mm-hmm. um, be humble and just keep talking to people. Um, if you think you're, you're too good for something, your, your brand or your company, or you know too much about something, then you probably don't and people are being faster than you and you don't even know about it. So it's a really about you know, talking and constantly learning. I think that's what it is. Um, and surrounding yourself with the right people is really, really important. Um, it's, I would say it's borderline impossible to get to where we have without having a really, really strong team around you. So I've been really, really careful about who I've hired and I take a long time to do that and I make sure they have a great skill set and a great personality. And it's really, really important because we all feed off each other and we all, you know, work together in tandem. The marketing has to move just as fast as the fulfillment and, um, and the operations aspect of it. And if you're not in sync with each other, the, the two wings of the business, then you're doomed to fail because either the marketing is going to move too quick to the point where you can't fulfill orders and you're sold out, or you're overstocked and you have no budget to actually spend on marketing. So everybody really needs to work together, and we do a really great job of that. Mm, definitely the, the big balancing act. So um, what, what other goals do you have for the remainder of this year? Remainder of this year? Like, what are some things that the listeners can look out for from, from you guys? Yeah, we have some some new products coming out. Um, we do everything um, reactively, so we constantly um, take feedback from our customers, and they tell us um, things are that are great, things that are not so great, and we adjust. So we have some new sheet materials coming out, some new product lines coming out. Um, we're going to do some more photo shoots to to get some more inspiration to our customers and our community. Um, of how they can mix and match their products to make them better. It's really, really just about growing the community um, that we've built and take care of them. So um, they want to gift items to other people and refer other people. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rich. So brooklinen.com is B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com is the website. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? Yeah, um, Instagram um, is probably the best spot for us. Um, for social media wise or our Facebook. Um, I would love to have you come check out our stuff on our site as well. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll link all that in the show notes again. Thanks so much for your time, Rich. Thanks Felix. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30 day free trial.